0: Dear all of you, if you've been following me on social media, you know that I've been sick for almost two weeks, but since I don't want the episode to be cancelled, especially so soon after the summer break, here comes a more stripped-down version. I'm really sorry. Even if some people support me in the background, falls and stands this project with me, with myself. That means if I'm sick, I cannot do the podcast. But Nonetheless, let's get into the episode. Saints and Relics. This has made Cologne incredibly rich during the course of its history. In the last episode, Cologne crowned itself as one of the hotspots for pilgrimages by having the bones of the three wise men slash kings brought here in 1164 by Reinhard von Dassel. But Cologne... Possess not only qualitatively high quality relics such as the Three Kings, the Peter Stars, or Saint Peter's chains, nor also quantitatively, one could show many relics in the town. Only Rome, the eternal city in Italy, had more relics to show. But after that, already came Cologne. First of all, I would call myself a cultural Catholic, if you know what I mean. I'm accustomed to catholicism but i'm not really going to church every sunday if you know what i mean so for me even though i'm a catholic this whole relic veneration of the middle ages and the early modern era sometimes makes me smile even it makes me strange which dimensions the whole thing has taken during the course of history as a historian however I must detach myself from it as well as I can, even if it's probably not completely possible. Historical scholarship itself has also either glorified or even completely dismissed this topic of relics in the past. Secondly, there are many false assumptions that are still floating around today about relics, namely that it was used to make a big sales to make a killing, and that was all a huge hoax. We need to shed some light on this. Despite all the alienation that relics and the veneration of saints cause in an increasingly secularized society and public of the 21st century, from a historical point of view, we must devote ourselves to this topic when we talk about Cologne. Otherwise, we neglect in an elementary part of the of the pre-modern world of Christian faith and the everyday life of these people. That would be criminal. People hope for real protection and the help of the saints in all areas of life and fields of action such as ec- economy, health or politics in general. And we look at how Cologne's most famous reliquary, the Shrine of the Three Magi, came into being. That shrine, which every year, nowadays, 6 million visitors look at each year. So let's start the episode right after the intro. It is rather an inconspicuous annex from the outside. The so-called golden chamber of the former Monastery Church of St. Ursula in the northwest of today's Old Town in Cologne. This is located in the middle of the quarter that gives its name, the Ursula Viertel, so the Ursula's Quarter. But something can be found here that once made Cologne incredibly wealthy and before a popular tourist destination. It is a place that many tourists from far away miss unless they take part in a city tour of the Domforum, the tourism center of the Cologne Cathedral, which includes this place in its program as well. This is because, despite its proximity to the cathedral and the main train station, the neighborhood of the Ursula Quarter is nowadays cut off from the historically developed part of the cathedral neighborhood by the so called North South Road. Not far from St. Ursula's car traffic thunders through the old town on several lanes. This is not meant as a diss. I myself have driven by often enough with my car there. The location of the Golden Chamber in the Church of St. Ursula itself is therefore usually only known to the locals. An advantage for you guys, because then you have the room to yourself. Therefore, let's go and visit the Golden Chamber of St. Ursula. Just in advance, whoever wants to go to the Golden Chamber of St. Ursula should definitely check the opening hours beforehand. Tuesday through Saturday it is open to non-religious visitors from 10am to 12pm and 3pm to 5pm. Sundays are from 3 to 5pm only. These are the opening hours as of September 2023. Whether this will still be the case in the future, I cannot know, of course. A look at the homepage of St. Ursula will help. Anyone who enters the church quickly notices that the congregation continues to value the place as a sacred space. A sign is positioned in the middle of the main aisle with the following notice in German and English, saying, You are entering a church, not a museum. Please be aware of this. I almost missed the sign because whoever enters the basilica stands directly in the beautiful Romanesque nave, which was beautifully decorated at that time when I visited the church during uh, the pre Christmas season when I, when I was there. But we're not here for Saint Ursula itself, the church, but for its attached golden chamber. So I turn to the right and see a small open door. I step through it and and once again knocked off my socks. How could I describe this room to someone who has never seen this room before? It is a room decorated with bones and skulls on the walls up to the cross-vault ceiling. Human skulls stand on shelves enclosed in reliquaries. Some can be seen complete, others packed into carved wooden busts. Above them, every square inch of wall is decorated with bones, such as arm and neck bones. The bones here are draped to form patterns and even whole letters, even whole sentences in Latin and prayer phrases. Much is decorated with gold, such as the cabinets that hold all the scars. That's why it's called Golden Chamber. I want to look around further, but a voice brings me back to reality. Young man, this is going to cost you, otherwise you'll have to leave. The sexton stands directly in a corner next to the passageway and looks at me demandingly. Pleased with the rainish German directness, I give her a 5 euro bill, incidentally admission costs 2 euros. And I say, hey, you can keep the change as a donation. But the sexton remains firm, out of the question, she says, and hands me the change of three euros back. As soon as the transaction was completed, between the two of us, she retreated back to her corner. Of course I know that the golden chamber in St. Ursula costs admission, I mean two euros, that's nothing. After all, St. Ursula was the church of my nearby school, my high school, the Städtisches Hansa-Gymnasium, where services were held. But most of the students only went there, at, back at, in my days, only there so that, di- that they didn't have to attend the lessons, the classes that took place at the same time in school. But every time I am fascinated again with this golden chamber, which was built in this form that you can see nowadays, only in the Baroque era, so after the Middle Ages. But nevertheless, by its function, it already existed in the Middle Ages and attracted the pilgrims in masses. Each individual ankle that you can see here pinned at the wall represents a relic. How did all the bones and skulls get into this chamber? And why were they relics, so remains of saints, and then in such a mass? Remember episode number 21 about St. Ursula. According to legend, she found he her martyrdom in uh, outside of Cologne when she was killed by Attila the Hun. So were her companions the 11 virgins. Legend or not, what was true was that St. Ursula the church had already stood in the northwest of the Roman Wall settlement area. And where did the Romans bury their dead again? correctly, outside the city, not inside the city. But this changed in the Middle Ages. Now the dead were buried inside the city, right next to the parish church. Even in death, the faithful Christian inhabitants should be close to their parish. So, when the people later on in the Middle Ages were digging here in the earth around St. Ursula, they quickly found the bones of people buried here in ancient times, and not one or two, but countless of them. The numerous bone finds were explained by the people of that time by the fact that this was the killing field where Ursula once found her martyrdom. And because of the so many skeletons they found, 11 companions quickly became 11,000 companions. I mean, the people at the time said... Where else should all these bones come from? They had forgotten that the Romans buried the dead outside of the city. And being in a totally strict Christian world, they tried to explain the things they saw in the daily life with all those Christian legends they knew about. But even without DNA tests, it was obvious that not all skeletons came from women and The legend says that St. Ursula's companions were all virgins, so women. There were also numerous men among the skeletons, though. And how could that be? Surely Ursula's company consisted only of said virgins. Quickly, the narrative was then corrected. Because of Ursula's piety and charisma, Ursula had inspired numerous people during her pilgrimage and encouraged them to follow her, among them, of course, numerous men, the Pope included. Thus the massive bone find was explained theologically. Some of you guys may now exclaim, ha, that's a really good trick, the people of Cologne knew how to cheat and embellish legends, but that would be unfair. People at that time, as I said, believed rock solidly in the story, the legend of St. Ursula. princess from Brittany on a pilgrimage to Rome as part of her bachelor party, martyrdom outside Cologne when she refused to marry the pagan Han leader Attila. With these additions to the legend, people try to explain to themselves why reality was the way it was. And this is also expressed in the numerous reports, letters, and records of the people from that time that talk about this. How did it come about that people began to venerate bones in the first place? That's a question I had for a very long time, being a modern historian and not a medieval historian. The veneration of relics is almost as old as Christianity itself. The New Testament in the Bible already speaks of objects from saints being used to work miracles. In the early phase of Christianity, saints were those who suffered martyrdom. This was not difficult in late antiquity. One only had to shout, Hello! I'm a Christian! and was most of the time immediately killed by the Roman authorities, especially during the periods of massive persecutions of Christians. Thus, one was a martyr and, if not forgotten, became a saint. But then a big problem arose for becoming a saint. In the course of the 4th century, first the persecution of Christians ceased in the Roman Empire, and then this new religion of a Jewish carpenter also became the state religion of the Roman Empire itself. Thus protected, Christianity became the dominant religion in the Occident during the early Middle Ages. With the exception of a few pagan Frisians or Saxons, it had become difficult to be killed for one's Christian faith by somebody. This is not meant to sound disrespectful to all those martyrs, but I'm just trying to make a very complex topic extremely short so as not to lose your attention here. The second problem, as I said, Christianity really took off in the early Middle Ages and already in late Antiquity. Churches spring up everywhere And what must every altar of a church have? back in that time. A relic, of course. So the number of churches increases, immensely, but the number of saints and their mortal (laughs) remains, on the other hand, which can be used as relics, does not increase to the same extent. Solutions abound. One invents new saints. Colons particularly outstanding. Hiribert, Bruno, Anno, Cunibert, Severin, Maternus, Those were all Cologne bishops who did not die a violent death or perished at the hands of pagans, but were named saints post-mortem, so after their death, because of miracles attributed to them, at least in the region of Cologne. By the way, until today, or one simply extended the number of saints, as in the case of St. Ursula and her followers, coming uh, from 11 to 11,000. Another solution was, divide the relics that you got. In this case, it means when you have a a skeleton of a saint, for example, somebody gets a finger, another one gets a part of a skull plate, the other gets a piece of a rib. For even so, every smallest part of a saint, that was the belief at that time, would possess the same degree of sanctity as the entire body, and even that was scarce, there was a third solution. The so-called contact relics. I don't know if that's really the term in English, but that's the direct translation for the German word of it. So what do I mean with that? Contact relics are not the bones, the blood, or other components of the human body, but objects. Like a piece of clothing from a scene, or a comb, or even a, f- a spoon that he used. I wanted to say fork, but that makes no sense. So let's leave it uh, with a spoon. So objects that were touched by a saint or were used by a saint. And it was believed that the holiness of the saint also passes on to that specific object. Cologne's, uh, Cologne is a great example for that, where uh, Archbishop Bruno, in the middle of the 10th century, already brought the chains of St Peter and the staff of St Peter to Cologne, being those being contact relics. But of course, it was quite the best thing to have the best category regarding relics, meaning whole bodies or at least some bone parts of saints. That's why the the, the bones of the free magi were such a big deal, those were. Three full body sets of, peop- of people who the, that were believed to have touched and seen Jesus Christ with their own eyes. If you know what I mean, that's making those relics the, 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 the top tier relic. And as time went on in the Middle Ages, the question arose, how do we present or keep these relics? Because they are so important for us. And um, there were many ways to present that. A really favorite thing to do was to put uh, bones into busts, for example, which was, as I said, very popular in Cologne and can be seen in St. Ursula's Golden Chamber up until today, especially uh, head or body busts were really popular. St. Ursula still has 100 of them, and the Museum Schnütgen for medieval art itself has 30. So busts meaning those are uh, um, out of wood-made heads. You know, you take a piece of wood and you, you carve a head into it and you paint it with a face and eyes and nose and ears, uh, put some, uh, draw hair on it, and then you make a little a chamber in the back of that bust and put the relic in it. So... Um, in a flap usually at the back of the head was then an intendation in which the bone splinter was kept. Other storage objects for relics can be elaborately decorated boxes, chests, shrines obviously, or objects with rock crystal settings, or even arm relic so containers that were designed in the shape of an arm made out of wood, for example, as well, which then contained a piece of a arm bone of a saint, if you know what I mean. I will put pictures of all these different kinds of relics on my homepage. Uh, I made many pictures of relics like that in Aachen, in Cologne, and in Siegburg, in places where you could still find many relics up until today from that time period. Or, quite simply, you could really put relics into uh, drawers and cupboards. Until the Second World War, many of Cologne's churches were often chock full of relics and cabinets that stood in the middle of the church and were filled with all kinds of bones and skulls. Unfortunately, most were lost to wartime destruction. St. Ursula, however, with its golden chamber, was more fortunate here. Especially the rock crystal setting in storage objects for relics are quite popular from the year 1200 onwards and illustrate the desire of the believers at that time for more visibility of the relics otherwise there was nothing left to do but believe as a normal pilgrim or believer in what was hidden in a closed and not visible in what was not visible inside the box you know the shrine of the magi is a good example of this it is nice and beautiful, but unless you open it, you have no idea what's in there. And from a religious point of view, the really valuable thing is not the shrine itself with all the decorations of gold, silver and precious uh, stones like diamonds, but its contents, which are usually denied to the viewer, with the exception of a short window at the beginning of January. That's the period where up until today they still open the shrine and then you can see the bones put in there one must therefore believe that the saint or saints from whom one hopes for salvation and intercession with god are really always inside that box the transparent and naturally grown rock crystal therefore that we can see in many reliquaries from that time of the Middle Ages, became an expensive but also sought-after object for the display and placement of relics. Thus a relic could be simultaneously packed in a dignified cover, and at the same time it was made visible at all times for pilgrims or visitors. Modern glass, through which one could look without clouding, was still far away, or if then... They it existed? I have no idea actually. It was simply too expensive. The subject of rock crystal should not be underestimated here. If you don't know what rock crystal is, as I said, look at my homepage, I have pictures of rock crystal. For modern eyes, it just looks like glass, but hear me out why rock crystal was back then so special, when there was no normal glass around that we have nowadays where we can see through. In 2005, during the construction of the new north south subway in Cologne, not far from the cathedral, the only medieval rock crystal workshop ever found in Europe was found, which was active around the year 1200, the period we are currently close to. It was an insane archaeological find that attracted worldwide attention in the uh, scene. In this workshop, Through a constant influx of water, the rock crystals were cut and worked with tiny, tiny hammers. Really, they're really tiny. I have pictures of that, of course, as well. In fact, it cannot be worked in any other way, because the material, the rock crystal, is too fragile and could break under greater force. It can be assumed that this rock crystal cutting shop in Cologne supplied almost all shrines that have rock crystal in the Rhineland and the wider area, with this material then we know of another cologne workshop which in that period of the 12th and 13th centuries as if only an assembly line produced figural and ornamentally jewelry for reliquaries for mass use they used horse and cattle bones instead of the expensive and difficult to obtain ivory with the relic fever which seized cologne in the middle ages a real industry arose which dealt with the provision and decoration of relics. But before we go any further, though, let's take a quick break. A widespread opinion is that Cologne became filthy rich by trading in relics. That is, they wantonly dug up the skeletons of their Roman predecessors, fraudulent Lentzli declared them to be relics, then magnificently decorated them with their handiwork and sold them all over the known world. So making big time money with fake relics and thereby laughing up their sleeves. That is really persistent, but it's not true. Sure, there will have been black sheeps somewhere, as with all things. What there was of course, that other monasteries or clergymen travel to Cologne and then ask humbly in the monasteries or at the bishop's court or later at the council of the city of Cologne to get something from the large relic treasure, so to get it as a gift. And then they said, Okay, you can have a, a piece of that relic and or touch it with another relic. And you know, there are great re- uh, contemporary reports about this letters or records. I would love to include them into this episode. But as I said, being sick for two weeks, I didn't have enough time to put it in here. Uh, But I really want to, really. Maybe I will put it back, uh, I will put it in later, in a later episode. Because this is a topic that goes through centuries. But officially a big relic trade where you can buy three skulls of St. Ursula for the price of two On the market square, that did not exist. So if there was trade in relics here and there, it was illegal and took place on a smaller scale and in secret. And the workshops mentioned here would hardly have worked for such purposes in public and controlled by guilds. Therefore, there was no public and above all ecclesiastical permitted trade in relics. Quite the opposite, it was strictly forbidden to sell relics in Cologne. So Cologne artisans have not created the packaging material to quote an author of a book that I took as inspiration and research, I will tell you later who it was, for the expert of such relics. So what was the purpose of this industry? To process and prepare the relics themselves in order to attract pilgrims to Cologne, For above all, people in Cologne primarily believe that the thousands of bones found outside the Roman city wall really belonged either to St. Ursula and her companions or, for example, to St. Geryon, a legend we already talked about in this podcast before as well, and his comrades that were martyred outside the city gates as well when, being Roman legionaries, they refused to kill innocent people. And Because they didn't want to do that, they were killed by other pagan Roman legionaries. Those who believe in these legends, and people did in those times, then really think that these are the bones of saints they found and dug up here in the earth. And not simply the necropolises from Roman times, they didn't really think about that. Why should they? They didn't really know about that anymore. If one of you says that the purpose of a reliquary is nonsense, keep in mind that here we had a completely different world of beliefs and a completely different level of knowledge with other ideas and principles. Who knows what people will say about us one day. Maybe future generations will say about us why we once built such space-wasting temples of consumption to buy a TV or have a hamburger or something like large ground-level parking lots. Who knows what future generations will nag about us. How elaborately the people of Cologne decorated their relics and also considered them important is shown to us by the Shrine of the Three Maja, which was specially built for the relics that Reinhard von Dassel brought to Cologne in the last episode in 1164. From the point of view of art history, The Shrine of the Three Magi is simply a masterpiece. The client for this was the Cologne Cathedral chapter. And the choice of the artists that the Cathedral chapter chose disproves another often asserted thesis for the Middle Ages that artists were at the lower end of society. This would allegedly be due to the fact that works of art in this period of the High Middle Ages were most of the time or even never signed so we do not know what the artist's name was however in the case of the shrine of the free magi we know that Nicholas of verdun was involved here that was the guy's name and that he was considered one of the most renowned artists of his time now it is so that in the long development period from 1190 to about 1225 Nicholas of Verdun, of whom we, unfortunately, know almost nothing personally or by or about his biography, did not work alone on the shrine. Probably, had given the basic design at the beginning, but also the cathedral chapter. So, the mostly high noble monks of the monastery of the Cologne Cathedral will certainly have made specifications which figures they wanted to have on their donated shrine. Thus, the shrine represents the of the salvation history of Jesus up to the day of judgment. On one long side, there are important figures from the Old Testament of the Bible and on the other, quasi-opposite side, figures from the New Testament of the Bible. Shrines in Cologne were usually longer wooden boxes with a shed roof. We already talked about several shrines in this podcast, the Shrine of Heribert or the Shrine of Anno, and yes, they all originated in This time we're talking about at the end of the 12th century and early 13th century. Anno got her shrine in Siegburg around the year 1183, and Heribert got his one a bit earlier uh, for his monastery in Deutz around 1175. With Anno's shrine, by the way, it is also assumed that this guy, Nicholas of Verdun, was also the builder of it. So the shrine of the three magi and the shrine where Anu was buried in. For the shrine of the magi, however, one turned to the proven late Romanesque design. One made three in one quasi. Two shrines at the bottom and another one in the middle. Three magi and so on, you know, three parts, three people. But what is interesting about the Shrine of the Magi, with Nicholas of Adar, the decision was made for foreign, not cologne, artisan. Countless craftsmen, not only the name Nicholas of Adar must have worked on it. A mighty wooden corpus was decorated and designed over decades in meticulous manual labor and that with the most different techniques, with animal Metal casting, driftwork, engraving, punching patterns and filigree. When exactly the only known craftsman, Nicholas of Vedar, worked on the shrine, we unfortunately do not know. It is possible, however, that it was done between 1190, because the dendrochronological research of the wooden core of the shrine showed that to be the earliest date. This means that the tree was felled, the wood of which was used for the shrine. Until 1205, we can assume at the latest date that Nicholas of Verdun worked on it because it's the year when it's reported that Nicholas left Cologne. From there, his trace is lost. When or where he worked and when he died is unknown. Unfortunately, it is also not really determined what exactly he has done on the shrine in his own work and what. Did others add to it? What we do know is how the shrine was built. Using the techniques mentioned earlier, the wooden body of the shrine was gradually decorated by hand with individual parts nailed on it. And for the fact that it is so old by now, the shrine is still in a very good shape nowadays. From 1961 to 1973, it was extensively renovated and received a new wooden body. But don't worry, you can still see the original wooden corpus in the Cologne Cathedral Treasury. Even if much remained in the dark, it is certain that in 1225, a masterpiece of late Romanesque art was completed. People flocked to Cologne from all over to see the shrine up until today, as I said. 6 million a year. At that time, however, in the old Cologne Cathedral, because today's Cologne Cathedral did not yet exist at that place, the old cathedral was still from the 9th century, it became increasingly crowded every year at the beginning of the 13th century. The church became too small for such a number of pilgrims. And especially the early medieval design of the old church did not really offer the opportunity to effectively guide the masses of pilgrims through the cathedral without disturbing the regular religious routine of the clergy. You have to remember, when the church was built in the 800s, the needs for a cathedral were different than a few centuries later. So when the pilgrims tried to get into the church, they were led through the only and narrow side portal of the old cathedral, However, because this small door served as an entrance and an exit as well, it was not really ideal. Perhaps, it was thought more and more from the 13th century onwards, a larger and architecturally more dignified cathedral could be built here at the same place, with a beautiful circuit where people could enter the cathedral in the south and then exit it in the north, and in the rest of the cathedral would still be enough space to let the monks do their normal stuff and that's uh, a normal service take place and if you want to do that why not dare to do something new for example a cool and new design like that gothic star that was so popular in france at that time at the moment of the early 13th century and some cologne people thought if we do this We want to build the highest gothic church the world has ever seen. But, spoiler alert, we'll come back to this another time. I could now go on about the details of the Shrine of the Three Magi and the imagery, but that would go beyond the scope of this topic. Let's take a look at another aspect of how relics played a major role in people's everyday lives in medieval Cologne. (music) Cologne A frequently held opinion in the Christian Middle Ages was, one should not blind the relics of the saints with gold and silver, and dazzle the faithful with the glitter of precious metal. It would distract from the actual intended spirituality by all the bling-bling, and some were also of the opinion, (laughs) that the church should not flaunt with wealth. In the Cologne area, however, the whole thing was interpreted as follows. Since the relics themselves were more valuable than gold and silver, it is quite alright to pack them in something like this, gold and silver, since precious metal could never surpass the value of the relics themselves. With the artistic and expensive decorations, one wants to present a reflection of the celestial city of Jerusalem. Now one might say, well, what was so special about shrines and golden boxes now with relics in it, because these expensive things simply stood now hidden in churches and were seen at most by maybe a handful of clergymen or some monks or nuns? But the fact is that in the Middle Ages, you could encounter a shrine on the street And that almost every day. shrines did not simply always stand around in the respective church. Depending on which saint just had his or her day of remembrance, the corresponding saint or rather his or her relic associated with him or her was carried in a procession through the adjacent city district and presented to the public. But this was only the light version. But you can imagine, with so many relics of saints in the city, you could expect every day that there was somewhere a procession going on. During citywide petition processions, it even happened that all the shrines and reliquaries of the city, often then dozens or countless of them, were carried through the city at once, so that the narrow streets of the city were packed with bearers and participants. Citywide processions were celebrated especially in times of need, during droughts or famine waves. Examples of such processions we had already had in some episodes. From later times, such as the 14th century, we know which district or which professional groups carried which shrine from which church. For example, the Guild of the Goldsmiths carried the shrine of St. Gerion. The inhabitants of the Eigelstein Quarter in the north of the city, in former uh, suburb of Niederich, carried the shrine of St. Aterius, the fiancée of St. Ursula, from the monastery church of the same name, named after her. The shrine of the three kings, the three magi, could not be carried by anyone less than kings, bishops, dukes, or high nobles. Such processions thus also showed the status of people. But what united all participants, whether poor or rich, or powerful or royal or non-royal, bishop or not-clergy, uh, all participants of a procession received absolution of sins from the Archbishop of Cologne. Practical. Finally, during a city-wide petition procession, all the shrines met in the cathedral and were placed side by side in a fixed order in the cathedral space. With such consecrated holiness in one place, one hoped for divine care that finally the hoped for rain would come for example. At the same day all those shrines were put back into their respective churches and in this way the whole public space of the city many times in the year served as a big religious uh, space where religion was uh, practiced. Quite different from nowadays where mostly all religious acts are inside the church and not somewhere in the streets. Well, there are still in Catholicism a few um, examples for that walking through the street with a procession but not in that same intensity anymore as it had been in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. With the amount of shrines, it must have been a huge spectacle. You are welcome to have a look at how the city procession of 1948 looked like on the occasion uh, of the 700th anniversary of the laying of the foundation stone of today's Gothic Cologne cathedral. In the middle of the war-destroyed city, the procession went through It looks really impressive in contemporary footage that can be found on YouTube, but I will put uh, a video from YouTube uh, uh, of that procession on my homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com. It's even in English. You can watch it with, as I said, English commentary. So, dear people, at this point, I would then rest the episode for now. It was a small emergency episode that took place in a very short time on a Saturday and in less than 48 hours this episode will be heard by you guys. Gladly I would have inserted still primary sources here from that time as I said but because I was sick for so long I simply didn't have the time. I hope you enjoyed this little journey into the world of shrines and the veneration of saints. There can be so much more to to be mentioned here, but yeah, we leave it at that now. I find it so interesting to illuminate this topic from today's point of view, simply because it was a completely different world of thought than today. We also need to take a look at the topic of pilgrims somewhere else another time. I based this episode on two books by Anton Legner, the director of the Museum Schnütgen of for Medieval Art from nineteen seventy to nineteen ninety. Incidentally, the great art historian recently, just a week ago, in August twenty twenty three, celebrated his ninety-five ninety-fifth sorry, his ninety-fifth birthday and published his autobiography. I'll have to read that uh, I have to read that book. I haven't got I haven't gotten I have not You see, it's late. I did not get it yet. If that's the right way to say it in English, I have no idea. The works I used from him were called Cologne Saints and Shrines and Cologne Valley Culture. The titles were of course in German, but that's the English translations for those two uh, books. For my research on the Shrine of the Three Magi, I used Rolf Lauer's The Shrine of the Three Kings. The book personally has a special place in my heart. At that time I was a student intern at the Cologne Cathedral Building Administration as well as the Cologne Cathedral Publishing House and I saw the book being published during my internship and when my internship was over I received a copy hot off the press with a personal dedication from the then-Cathedral Master Builder Barbara Schock-Werner. And man saying that i realized that was just 17 years ago and back then i was only 16 years young i'm getting old thanks also to those who tipped me via paypal this time thanks to silvia barbara marco sabine Hayo, martina janine and another sabine i hope i did not forget someone because as i said i've been sick and maybe i overlooked someone If I did so, please tell me and I will correct that. I am also happy about my newest Patreon. Thanks to Andreas for supporting me now for the long term. That means a lot to me. In the end, thanks to everyone for listening. Please rate this podcast in your favorite podcast app and recommend me to others. Thank you. See you again in three weeks. or hear you again, better said. In three weeks and auf Wiedersehen. (laughs) you <laughs>